Hello and welcome to a special instalment of the Vintage Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined by David Grossman, winner of the 2017 Man Booker International Prize for his book, A Horse Walks Into a Bar. The book was translated from the original Hebrew by Jessica Cohen, and David and I talked about comedy, memory, and the stories that we tell ourselves both as people and as nations. David, thank you so much for joining us on the Vintage Podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I should say congratulations, first of all, for the Man Booker International Prize. Um, congratulations uh, for that achievement. When you read down the shortlist, uh, it lists the country that each author hails from. Uh, and of course, you're joined on the shortlist this year by Amos Oz, uh, another Israeli writer. Um, so you're dominating the shortlist <laughs> this year. I just wonder, though, what, do you consider yourself to be an Israeli writer, and I'm going to put my sort of speech marks up there as a sort of title. Um, is that is that sort of how you feel, or, or are you just simply a, a writer who happens to live in Israel? I'm very much an Israeli writer, uh, and I'm a human being who was born in Israel. Uh, of course I'm an Israeli because I write in Hebrew and I write about life there. I think I hardly wrote about a reality out of Israel. Uh, and uh, Israel is intriguing for me, the, the, the intensity of the situation and the, the dilemmas there. And uh, everything there is so uh, loaded for me uh, that I, I hardly dare to think that I will be able to write about an, a reality out of Israel. It's, it's the only place that I can more or less understand and decode some of its codes. And this is the place that it's the most relevant for me in my life. So I'm almost doomed to write about Israel. Well, it's interesting that you say, I mean, do you feel almost sort of, uh, sort of imprisoned by that sort of situation? No, no, not at all, not imprisoned, no. I think, uh, I mean, the reality is really so interesting and inner contradictory and so many layers there are in, in our reality not imprisoned at all the situation is suffocating the mm. fact that we are stuck for more than a century in, in a time wrap that uh, we dooms us to repeat again and again the same mistakes this is prison against that I try to rebel also through writing about it to try to understand why are we stuck in this situation and what are the results and the consequences of being all our life trapped in in this situation uh, but you know maybe because i i have a dream or a vision of how life can be without this imprisonment of the situation what does it mean to live life not under constant danger and threat? What does it mean to raise children without fear, knowing that you will be able to see a sequence of children and grand-grandchildren? Mm. All these things I have no idea about, but I, I yearn to, to experience them once. Your latest book, A Horse Walks Into Bar, is another one that has been translated by Jessica Cohen. Um, and I wanted to mention her briefly as well, because you have written very different books throughout your career. 
Um, so she has to work quite nimbly to, to sort of find the way of translating those books to an English readership. And with A Horse Walks Into a Bar, of course, we have stand-up comedy, we have humour. Does that mean that she had to work even harder to find the sort of the best way to translate your jokes into English? Did you work closely with her on that or do you just trust her to, to go away and, and do it? First, I trust her deeply, but I also worked with her as I worked with many of my translators. I, I did something uh, unusual. I gathered, I think, 15 of my translators to a, a translation center in a small town in Germany, Strahlen. It's a, it's a magic house because there are in, in the rooms of this house uh, something like 24,000 dictionaries of all fields of life, you know, of shipyard terminology uh, in Britain from the 18th century and all kind of odors and perfume dictionary from France of the 17th century and dictionaries of curses from each language to each language. And we sat there, the, the 15 translators, and the writer, myself. And I read to them out loud the whole book, paragraph by paragraph. I used to read some lines and then to pause and wait. And then I started to hear whispers. They consulted amongst themselves, which is the exact term that they should use here. And because we made them sit uh, near the, the sisters' languages, so to say. Mm. So they could have helped each other. And they were very interesting. Uh, debates, for example, I mentioned a steak, so they wanted to know exactly what kind of steak, how rich and thick is the steak, because it should uh, be appropriate for the, the person who eats it, for, for, to his social economic background. Or in Hebrew, there is only one word for a fetus. In Italian and Spanish, there are three different words for the three phases of pregnancy. Right. So all these we had to, you know, to fix and to know, and I can tell you, it was a week of doing something totally spiritual. What an experience. We're just sort of bathing in, in language and in the nuances yes. of language. I mean, yeah. that must have been extraordinary. Extraordinary. Not easy for the writer because the translators, as you know, are very opinionated, accurate human beings, and they are not only reading the text, they really scrutinize it. And, and it was quite a test to the text to see that he can stand this uh, exam and criticism of these 15 people. Uh, and also think of the translators. Usually they are very lonely people because they are the only one in, the, in, in this or that country that works so intensely on this project. And suddenly we created a network of them and I know that it continues to work and they continue to consult with each other. Mm. We must look at the form of, of this book. Um, it is a, a stand-up comedian's performance essentially, uh, compacted into, into two hours. The reader it feels as if they are there in the room. We, we see it from, a, from another person's point of view, from somebody in the audience. But I'm, I'm intrigued by this form and I wondered did the idea to write a book in this form come first or did the idea of the book then find its form as you were writing it? I had the idea for the story, uh, the story about a boy who lives in a very symbiotic family, him, his mother and his father, uh, and they are totally entangled with each other, not in the most pleasant way. Mm. And then he goes to the south of Israel. There is a youth camp, semi-military youth camp, that I also took part in when I was 14 and 15. 
And it's the first time he leaves home and he goes there and after a day or two, a, a, a female soldier comes and urges him to go to the barrack of the commander and he hears the commander shouting from within, where is he? Where is the orphan? He has to be in the funeral at four o'clock. And that's how he learned that he has to go to a funeral. That means that either mama or papa died. And he very rapidly, all his belongings are packed in a backpack. He's put on a military vehicle and sent away for a journey of four hours. And only one question has not been asked. Who died? Is it mother or father? And nobody bothered even to tell him. Nobody bothered to put himself in this little boy's shoes to understand what a terrible situation he must have been in driving to the funeral and he doesn't know whom and gradually over the way he starts to believe that it's on him to decide he will decide who dies who died and because the one he sentenced to death actually died all his life he will live with this sense of deep guilt of being the executor of either mama or papa i'm not going to spoil it mm. to tell the end so i had the idea I had the, the intensity of this drive. I had a feeling of how maybe the, the most cunning way of cruelty is indifference, the indifference of the people who didn't bother to think how, how miserable he must have been. Mm. But I didn't know how to tell this story. And I had this idea for 24, 24 years. And in these 24 years, each time I started to write a novel, I said, now I'm going to write the story of this boy. And I never found the right way. And suddenly, one day, just by chance, and I don't know where the idea came from, because, I mean, if I knew where good ideas are, believe me, I would go and sit there all day. <laughs> and suddenly there was this, you know, sparkle. Why wouldn't he tell it to a foreign audience, to a people who are totally indifferent to his misery? And by that, he would duplicate the experience the, 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 the original experience where he was sent to the funeral and nobody really cared about him. And I thought, why not stand-up comedy? Why not to use humor in order to tell this tragic story? And of course, the audience in the room, they, they came to entertain themselves. They mm. came to wash their brains, as we say in Hebrew, lishtof tamoach. And suddenly they were trapped in the very intimate and demanding personal story so they even start to argue with him and to fight with him but he cannot stop he must tell this story because suddenly it erupts from him in such an irresistible power it's it, there is something about that atmosphere of a comedy club anybody who's been to one will know that there is always this slightly strange atmosphere as an audience member you're sitting there going i, I want to laugh and you're worried that the person's not going to be funny or that there's this jeopardy the whole time that people of course can heckle and shout things out and Dovola G, the, the, the comedian at the centre of this book, is, is certainly <laughs> heckled and, and jeered at. He has to deal with quite a lot. But there are these very important mirrors. You mentioned there that as a child he has this almost purgatorial four-hour journey where he has to endure the taxi driver, or the, the, sort of the military vehicle driver, just chucking jokes at him in the, the back of the car. And in the same way, I suppose, the audience are trapped in this venue, having jokes thrown at them, but also, of course, this airing of the soul. It, I suppose, in a way, did you feel that that was the perfect sort of arena for him to, to go through that experience again? Yes. <laughs> the fact is that I wrote it like that, so I believe that this is the, the perfect 
arena and the, the driver of the military vehicle, he, tell, he keeps telling him jokes uh, and in the beginning Dovele thinks that this guy is crazy <laughs> because he knows his situation, how can he tell me jokes like that? And yeah. then gradually he starts to understand that it's an act of grace that the driver wants to, to distract his mind from what awaits him in the cemetery in Jerusalem. Mm. So he tells him stories and jokes and the, the whole idea of joke, I, I, I started to think of it while writing this story because it's really a very strange uh, creation of mankind. You know, because if I met you in the corner of two streets here in London, I will not start singing an opera for you, an aria from an opera, but I will tell you, listen, the Pope and the Chief Rabbi and the Cadi were together on a plane. And you immediately know that I'm going to start telling you a joke. That mm. I'm going to tell you a, a story, a short story, hopefully, that is not real, that you don't know a, anything at all about the protagonist of it. And yet, for some seconds, you will be interested and intrigued. And you know that in the end, there will be a, a relief of laughter. Mm. So it's really quite a unique thing. And I, I must confess that until I wrote this book, I think I knew to tell three, four jokes. Now I know at least 40 jokes. It really changed my life. <laughs> but but I, I'm, very, I'm, I'm not an obsessive joke teller. I, I think that people who are obsessive jokes tellers, they mistake between telling jokes and having sense of humor. It's not the same. No. Having sense of humor is something much, much deeper and crucial than that. <laughs> Does this mean that you will now be available to hire as a, a stand-up comedian? Yeah, easily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about jokes, actually, because there is something very unique about jokes, as you've just said, but there is also this idea that they, the really effective jokes, and sometimes the ones that will make you laugh hardest, are the ones that come from pain. Perhaps the oldest joke is, is sort of schadenfreude, which is literally to laugh at somebody else's misfortune. Somebody mm -hmm. steps on a rake, it hits them in the face, everybody laughs, everyone gets that joke. But... For Godovola, there is this sense that the comedy has come from pain. He's been bullied as a child, he's had this awful experience, and he's then turned that into yeah. uh, his career. I wonder, is there something uniquely Israeli or is uniquely Jewish about this? Because, of course, there's an amazing history of Jewish comedians, and having been through so much through their shared cultural history, are they in a unique position to make jokes that really hit home? Yeah. I guess that there is something uh, like a Jewish humor, uh, and it's different from an Israeli humor. Israeli humor is more cynical, Yiddish humor is more ironic. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference, because if you are ironic, you also make fun of yourself. Uh, it's not that you stand outside the, the situation, which is the case in being uh, cynical. If you're cynical, you put a distance between yourself and the, the thing or the person you make laugh of. You're not really responsible for, for the situation. And I really prefer the, the Yiddish way of joking, which comes always with a kind of a silent sigh. And it says, it says something deeper about, about mankind, about the human situation. I also remember, by the way, as a child, the first times that I heard people telling jokes mm. and I was quite shocked because in every joke some someone is being hurt or damaged or insulted or humiliated and all the grown-up around me were laughing and I I was still stuck with the, this poor gentleman who was abused by, <laughs> by others. Probably the Jewish humor 
origi originated uh, from a certain history, uh, which was usually quite a tragic history. And the humor is a wonderful way to uproot yourself from a situation and to look at it from aside a little. Still, you still belong to it, but you had the energy to uproot yourself from a paralyzing situation and to make fun of it and to make fun of your soul or yourself in this situation. And if you were able to do that, you have not been a victim for a second, for, for 30 seconds. You were not a victim because the situation that previously has paralyzed you lost its power mm. upon you and suddenly you were liberated. Mm. There is a huge importance in this book as well on the idea of, of memory, of, of going back into the past and examining events that have happened. Dovler has invited this childhood friend of his, uh, almost as part of, to, be, to bear witness really to his story. And there is this feeling of that, uh, some kind of reckoning going on. And there is also this idea of atonement as well. Um, and I wondered whether, I know that you are very reluctant to sort of, you often get asked questions about this book, you know, does this mean this about the state of Israel? and these rather clumsy metaphors that people often try and interpret. But I wondered whether there is something about looking at things with a very sort of honest eye, as comedians often do, and to sort of jokingly be able to tell the truth like the, the sort of fool in Shakespeare. Is there something in there about this book that, that tells the truth about Israel that you might not have been able to do in a different kind of book? I think when we tell an old story and you in a new way, we get the rare privilege of uh, changing not only the way we remember, but the way we are. Because all of us, we have a kind of a, a, a formal story of ourselves that we present like a visit card to new acquaintances mm. or in psychological treatment. Uh, we know, and we know how to tell this story. We experts in we are experts in telling this story, and over the years we sharpened it and made it more dramatic, maybe because we know that it will gain us sympathy and it will allow us to think even uh, better as as better persons of ourselves. Now the problem is that at a certain point maybe this story is redundant, maybe we we could live without this story. Maybe this story turned to be a prison for us and we don't need it anymore. Maybe there is a time in our life that we can set free from stories that we told ourselves until this age. Now, I think that not only individuals can become victims of such overtold uh, stories, but also nations and societies. Uh, you see how countries uh, educate generation after generation on some legislative stories, formal, official, big stories with the values of these stories. But maybe this is exactly what makes those countries being stuck in situations that they are unable to set themselves free from. Mm. They become even addicted to the distortion that is in adhering to a certain fossilized story. Uh, in that sense, there is some resemblance between Dovele and the way he tells his story and the way he, he gets the rare privilege in this evening to set free, to be set free from this official story. 
But also I, I would maybe mention another point of resemblance, and this is the fact that Dovele is a person who lives in parallel to the life he could have had. Mm. Because of, I guess, because of his childhood, because of this traumatic journey where he became the executor of either mama or papa, he chose to live in a place that will be less painful for him, not in total proximity to his vulnerability, maybe. He became a stand-up comedian. He could have become a great actor. There are two moments in the story that he shows with very delicate movements what a great actor he could have been, but he chose to be a stand-up comedian, uh, which is an art for itself, but the, the power of it is its superficiality. It should be like a, a punch in your stomach. Mm. Uh, and, and he gets this chance suddenly, this evening, to witness his own life from some distance. He, he understands that he lived in parallel to his life that he should have lived. I think we all know people who live in parallel to their lives, people who are stuck in the wrong marriage. Of course, present company excluded. I'm talking not of London here, we are perfect human beings. I'm talking about Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. People who are stuck in the wrong profession and they really suffer every moment from being there. People who are stuck in the wrong gender and they got used to it and they hide it. And, you know, we, we develop a kind of a self that is only uh, responding to the pressures of our parents and to the expectations of our teachers, our friends, the, the zeitgeist. But the neglected life of us, the neglected self, keeps sending pulses of insult or pain or even grief because someone has been murdered there. Mm. And I think this is something that is common to Dovele and to my country, to Israel, that we all the time see the alternative. We are now mentioning the 50th anniversary, quote-unquote, year for the occupation in mm. the Six-Day War. A war that started when four Arab countries declared that they are going to wage war on us. Israel was terrified. I remember I was 13. I was very sure that we are going to die next week. It was very clear. We, we were two millions and, and they were 200 millions. Mm. And they really said in a very explicit, rude way that they are going to come. I remember we shall rape your mothers and sisters and we shall throw the men into the sea. And then Israel won the war and the rest is history and also geography and mm. tragedy. And we found ourselves in this distorted situation of being occupiers for 50 years, which it's a sentence that whenever I utter it, I freak out. How, how can it be? How can it be that Israel finds itself in this situation? And if in the beginning we only found ourselves, then over the years we really became addicted to the temptations of being occupier, having the upper hand, having the ability to subjugate and humiliate another people. Uh, peoples that are much stronger and more solid than us were unable to resist the temptations of powers and we came from a people who were so weak and so persecuted all our history and rarely only for some decades uh, or, or century and something we had weapon to protect us. Mm. All our histories we, 
we, we, we didn't have any way to protect ourselves and suddenly we found ourselves like an empire. Mm. Who could resist such a temptation? Uh, so in that sense, like Dovale, Israel has all the time the, the ability that I don't believe that many still uh, explore this option to look at what could have been done had we not been trapped into this situation. Had we just, you know, a day after the Sixth Day War called the Arab leaders and told them, listen, we do not want to be the occupiers of the Palestinians, of the Gazatians. We do not want to be an empire. We want to live in peace with you. Come on now, let's start to negotiate and achieve a better situation. Mm. But of course, such things rarely happen in, in reality. What, what is more active is those passions and desires of power, of influence, of being the strong one. And maybe only in literature we can get this rare chance to appeal to a higher instance. And this is what happens in this nightclub, that suddenly both Dovale and his friend from childhood who has betrayed him in a very ugly way, they get a chance to, to experience their story in a new way. And this time they gain freedom. Suddenly they are, they are set free from the, the tragedy that really paralyzed them and, and darkened their youth. It's very similar, I suppose, to the truth and reconciliation work that happened in South Africa after apartheid. It is through sharing truth, talking about it, that you then move on. Of course, Dobler uses humour hugely throughout his book. I mean, I suppose in a way to point up the sort of tragicomic aspects of the novel, the way that humour can sit right next to very, very serious mm -hmm. themes, you did amass this huge litany of jokes uh, to, to make this book possible. And I just wondered if you had a favourite joke that you might finish off this podcast with to leave our listeners with a little light moment in their heart. <laughs> there is this... Uh, well, I have to choose that. I'll take the joke about the parrot who was cursing like hell and his owner was a very polite and gentle person and he begged him to stop cursing but the, the parrot wouldn't listen to him he cursed even more even in Yiddish which is worse so the, the guy had no choice he was ashamed of the neighbors he told him listen if you continue I'll put you in the closet the, the parrot became even more violent so the guy had no choice put the parrot stuck him into the closet and, and closed the door and the shouts that came out from this closed closet were really unbearable. All the neighborhood heard them. The guy opened the closet, take the parrot, takes him to the refrigerator, put, uh, open the freezer, throws him in, close the freezer and wait. In the beginning, again, curses, insults, slandering. You cannot imagine how bad it was. And then suddenly, quiet. Now the guy starts to be a little afraid, maybe something happened to the parrot. He waited one more minute, he couldn't bear it anymore. He opened the door, the parrot comes out trembling, climb on the arm of the owner and said, my master, I swear to you, no one more word of curse will pass my lips. The guy couldn't believe his ears and then the parrot says, Excuse me, say, sir, may I ask, what did the chicken do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a classic. <laughs> Thank Love you. it.
David, it's been fantastic to talk to you in a bit more detail about A Horse Walks Into a Bar. I really, really have enjoyed the conversation. I want to wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that really was a fascinating discussion with David Grossman. Huge thanks to him and huge thanks to you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the Vintage Podcast. Please do rate or review us on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. It will help us to reach more book lovers. Till next time.